Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The World's Last Night. My name is James Thayer. We are in the final chapter of Genesis today, chapter 50. So I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then at the end, I want to share what uh, about three chapters ago I wanted to share with you concerning the life of Joseph. So let's start in verse 1. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants who were physicians to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. That took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long. And Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Uh, so something interesting about that is the fact that uh, Egyptian pharaohs were mourned for for 72 days. So this is a, a huge honor for the Egyptians to mourn. Um, Jacob for that long. So verse four, when the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, if I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father may take an oath saying, I, oh, that my father made me take an oath saying, I'm about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. So if we remember correctly, Abraham bought this. This was actually spiritually considered the down payment in Canaan. Abraham was able to purchase from a Hittite this piece of land and a cave. And that became Abraham's burial plot and eventually became his children's burial burial plot. So all the um, patriarchs are buried there, including Leah and Rebecca. So this is uh, the spot that basically... Jacob told Joseph to return him to to be buried along with his father, Isaac, and his grandfather, Abraham. So spiritually speaking, what's interesting about this is that was the only piece of land Abraham owned in Canaan, in the promised land. It was a spiritual down payment. I guess you could say it was a physical down payment of the future large swath of land that Israel would one day own which we find out in the middle of Exodus, they go back to try to take. So, okay. Um, He's talking to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, let me go bury Jacob. All right. So Pharaoh said, go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Then Joseph went to bury his father and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him. Along with all Joseph's household, his brothers and his brother's household, only their children, their sheep, and their cattle were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, and the Jordan is a river, by the way, they lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is across the Jordan. And Abel Mizraim means mourning of Egypt. So this is actually a very impressive procession. I think it was Martin Luther who basically said that um, this burial that you are about to see of Jacob is one of the most honored in all of scripture. Like we really don't have this much detail or description about anyone else's burial. Um, and so anyways, it sort of speaks loudly to how important, uh, Jacob was. Okay, here we go. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Mechpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. 
Hittite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. So I'm not going to say anything else about Jacob. We've spent a lot of time on him. Um, I'm going to keep moving on to uh, Joseph because he's the one I really want to talk about in this chapter. So verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the wrong we caused him. So these brothers are um, about to scheme to try to preserve their lives um, because they feel like that Joseph still may hold a grudge against them. And the only reason that he hasn't taken out his revenge or exacted justice, because um, I guess he's in a position of power to be able to do that, was because his father was still alive. I think that it's sad that they doubt Joseph's character at this point, and they doubt that Joseph has really forgiven them. But anyways, they don't believe it. So, uh, verse 16, so they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgressions and their sin, the wrong they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of, oh, of the God of your father. So, okay. We don't know if they made that up or not. I, I have no idea if they... That sounds like something they would make up, that Jacob just happened to say that and, you know, anyways, to get them out of trouble. But they could have made it up, or Jacob may have actually said it. But Joseph's response is Joseph wept when their message came to him. Now, he could be weeping for one of two things. One, he could be weeping because he's, he's like, well, why do my brothers think so little of me? That's really, really sad. Or he could also be weeping because he's convicted and... Um, by his father's last words, if he believes that this is true. All right, so he wept. Then his brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. So once again, the dream that Joseph had about his brothers bowing before him is being fulfilled again. And so they are humbling themselves before him. Verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. I love that verse, and it's actually echoed again in Psalms. I believe King David uh, says this, a similar thing. A friend wrongs him horribly, and he basically says, well, what you planned for evil, God meant for good. Um, in any case, I love that. I think it has a great outlook on how God takes the free will of man and even if they choose to, to conduct evil, such as in this case, selling Joseph into slavery, God's going to work a way to bring good from that. And in this case, the preservation of many lives. So, obviously, he, God would rather you work good, right? I mean, it's easier to start from a good foundation than to spend 25 years of Joseph's life being terrible. Um any case, I love that verse. I really, really do. Um, okay. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care. Okay. He says, uh, you planned evil. Okay. The survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph has forgiven them. He's saying, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you and your family. So verse 22, Joseph and his father's household remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's sons, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. So he lived 110 years, so that's less than his forefathers. 
But he did get to see his children's children's children. So that's awesome. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the Israelites take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. That's the end of the chapter, but I want to focus on this one part. Notice what Joseph prophesies or what he, he already knew. He says, I'm about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's prophesying what, you know, had already been prophesied, which is after the, those 400 years when the uh, Israelites are in captivity, God's going to bring them back out and bring them to the promised land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? So he's reiterating that. And then he basically says, when God comes to your aid, you're to carry my bones up from here. So Joseph basically says, like, when the Israelites leave, when our descendants leave this place, make sure you, you take my bones up from here to the promised land. Um, and so I want to now fast forward to a verse in Hebrews, which is a book in the New Testament. We've quoted out of it. And in fact, we've quoted this specific chapter before because it's usually called like the Hall of Fame of Faith or the Hall of Faith. And it lists a bunch of characters in the Old Testament and how they had faith. But um, this one verse, Hebrews eleven twenty two, talks specifically about Joseph. And it says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So the writer of Hebrews is using this act that Joseph made um, to show what good, strong faith is like. Like Joseph is so sure that God is going to bring about the promise he made to bring the Israelites to the promised land that he's commanding his descendants to take his body with them. His dead body is going to be a 400, 300 year old body, you know, um, with them to the promised land. And so the Bible wants us to, to dwell on the fact that he trusted God's promise. Um, he knew where God's people belonged. He, you know, he was, he was forward thinking. So that's that. But I, I wanted to also, before wrapping up this chapter, and I know it's short, and I'm sorry for that, um, but I wanted to, to read something that uh, the Enduring Word commentary has to say about um, Joseph and his life. And really, it it quotes Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a theologian. He said, There is scarcely any personal type in the Old Testament which is more clearly and fully a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ than this type of Joseph. And so then the commentary basically lists off a number of ways in which Joseph's life was similar to our Lord Jesus Christ's life. And you can, and I will say, some of these are a stretch, but I wanted to read them. I thought it would be a great capstone to Joseph's life, who, honestly, between you and me, is throughout the entire Old Testament, not Old Testament, but the entire book of Genesis, is the one character I feel like um, actually followed what God said. And so I think he's a great man for us to emulate but um, he's also a type for Christ. So here we go. Um, I'm going to list them off. Number one, he was a shepherd, uh, loved by his father, sent unto his brethren, hated by his brothers, 
And so in your mind, you know, think about how Jesus was treated. Try to compare Joseph's life to Jesus's as I read these. Uh, Number five, prophesied his coming glory, rejected by his brothers, endured unjust punishment from his brothers, sentenced to the pit, condemned to the pit, though a leader knew he should go free, sold for pieces of silver, handed over to the Gentiles, regarded as dead, but raised out of the pit, went to Egypt, made a servant, tempted tempted severely, but did not sin, falsely accused, made no defense. And you know what? I kind of want to explain some of these as we go. Um, I'll just pick a few of them out, like uh, sold for pieces of silver. We actually talked about that, handed over to the Gentiles. That's when um, Joseph was sold to the Egyptians. Well, Jesus was handed over to the Romans, um, regarded as dead, but raised out of the pit. Uh, all his brothers said he was dead. His father thought he was dead, right, Joseph? And the same with Jesus. They regarded him as dead, but three days later, he rose from the grave. Um, let's see, made a servant, true, tempted severely, but did not sin. That's in reference to Joseph being tempted by Potiphar's wife, right? Um, to commit adultery. Jesus was tempted in the desert 40 days by Satan, falsely accused. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Jesus was falsely accused by a ton of people, um, made no defense. It says Jesus was silent, you know, like a, a lamb to the slaughter. And Joseph too, as we noted, did not give any defense, Cast into prison, numbered with sinners and criminals. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Joseph was sent into prison with other criminals, even though both men were innocent. Endured unjust punishment. Um, Associated with two other criminals. One was pardoned and one was not. I think that one's pretty amazing because we remember Joseph um, had the baker and the cupbearer. And he was associated with both of them in prison. Both, both of them considered criminals. One was pardoned, though, and the other one wasn't. Same with Jesus. He had two thieves on the cross. One is pardoned. The other one wasn't. Um, let's see. Showed compassion. Brought a message of deliverance in prison. Wanted to be remembered. Shown to have divine wisdom. Recognized as having the Spirit of God. Betrayed by friends. Glorified after his humility. Honored among Gentiles while still despised or forgotten by his brethren. That one is talking about how Joseph was honored among the Egyptians, even though he was despised by his own family back home. Well, the same is true of Jesus, who was honored among multiple Gentile nations that he went and did miracles in. But when Jesus went back to his hometown of Galilee, he couldn't do any miracles because people were like, well, we saw him growing up. Like, how is Jesus so special? (laughs) Um... So anyways, he's despised by his own brethren, but he's honored among others. And there's also the fact that Jesus was despised by many of the Jews, even though the gospel was readily accepted by a lot of the Gentile nations. Um, Given a Gentile bride. So Joseph married an Egyptian lady. Jesus married to the church. All right. Was 30 years old when he began his life's work. Blessed the world with bread. Remember, Joseph stored it up, right? And Jesus was a spiritual blessing at Passover, breaking of bread. Became the only source of bread for the world. <laughs> that one's interesting. That one's a stretch, but my goodness, like, it gives me tingles thinking about that, that Jesus Christ is the bread of life, right? And he is what our spirits long for and hunger for. And at the same time, um, Joseph was the only one who had the foresight for seven years to store up grain and bread um, to sell to others. People from all over the world came to him. The world was instructed to go to him and do whatever he said to do. 
was given the name God Speaks and He Lives. His brethren were driven out of their own land. In his second appearing, he did not first go to his brothers. They came to him. He knew his brethren even while unknown and, and unrecognized by, by them. That's talking about, you know, they, uh, the brothers came to visit Joseph. They didn't recognize who he was. And in the same way, when Jesus was resurrected, he came back to uh, his dis- disciples and they didn't recognize him at first. Right until the breaking of the bread, the, I'm specifically thinking of the disciples on the road. Jesus comes and starts explaining about himself in the Old Testament, and they break bread, and that's when their eyes are open and they recognize that they were with Jesus after he'd resurrected. He blessed his brethren without their knowledge. He wanted all of his brethren to come to him. There was a significant time gap between his initial relationship with his brothers and his second relationship to his brothers. Uh, number 41, he gave his brothers a way of deliverance through substitution. Um, yeah, that one's interesting. We actually kind of talked about that a little bit. Jesus being the substitution for, um, the propitiation for our sins, which is a, basically a substitution, um, in who is doing, who is being punished. And in the same way, uh, Joseph was a substitution for, uh, his brothers basically being a, uh, intercessor. We talked about this. He was an intercessor in between, um, Pharaoh and his, his brothers. All right. Number 42, his second coming, second coming to his brothers had two appearances. He made himself known to his brethren at his second appearing to them. He was revealed as a man of compassion. His brothers repented of rejecting him with great amazement and tears. So this would be Jesus's disciples who rejected Jesus. Peter denied him three times. And yet when he came back, Peter was restored, you know, the, the, basically all these brothers uh, were convicted of their sin um, in both cases, Joseph and Jesus. He allowed no fellowship as in eating together until his brothers repented and he revealed himself. His brethren went forth to proclaim his glory. He made provision for his brethren. He prepared a place for his brethren and he received them into it. He brought Jew and Gentile together in the land. That one's pretty cool. Uh, because Jesus is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, which is every other nation, including, you know, my ancestors who were mostly British and German, um, would not be considered Jews. And yet Jesus made a way for us and the Jewish people. And in the same way, Joseph, uh, not only made a way for the Egyptians to make it through the seven years of famine, but also the Canaanites and his own brother and the Hebrews, So I think Joseph is an amazing man, and this is a really good fitting ending to Genesis, in my opinion. Uh, I'm going to do a whole episode on kind of like my highlights. I think what are the best parts of Genesis that we should dwell on, what are the biggest takeaways. And then after that, we're going to do Exodus. But I won't be able to get to this for several days. I'm going on vacation. I'm not even going to have cell service uh, where I'm going. Um, But when we get back, after I do that one episode on Genesis, we're going to jump into Exodus. And just to give you a little precursor... Many theologians will tell you Exodus is the most important book in the Old Testament. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'm willing to have my mind changed, especially as we study it deeper here together. Um, but I do know it is it is an excellent book, and it is the book that we get the Ten Commandments in, for example. So um, we get a lot of great development in the spiritual journey and understanding what God requires of His people— 
um, and of us from the book of Exodus. And then we also get just a really cool story about a people who had been enslaved for hundreds of years, miraculously being brought out of slavery. So until we get to that, my, uh, this is James from The World's Last Night.